You turn in your Bible with me to Jonah, chapter 3, verse 5. Jonah 3, verse 5. Pastor Dean has been doing a series over the last three weeks on Jonah, and it's been really good, and I feel like he has set me up in a good way this week with Jonah chapter 4, which is the, the climax of the book. There's so much good stuff here, so I just want to dive right in. But let's start in chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Let's skip down to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? This is an odd way to start chapter 4. I mean, I think, to us at least, it seems like you'd be happy. You go and you preach, it seems like every preacher or every missionary's dream. If a, if a missionary called us up this morning, one of our missionaries, and, and he said, you know what, I, I went to this, this city, unreached city, 120,000 people never heard the gospel, and I preached there for three days, and the whole city turned to God, we would be... I mean, we'd be jumping up and down. What, a, what great news. Our missionary. We've been supporting this person. And, you know, he preached and the whole city converted. That's awesome. What's wrong with Jonah? What's, why, why is his attitude so bad here? Well, I think it might be helpful to understand a little bit of the historical background to see why Jonah is so ticked off. The only other place in Scripture where Jonah is mentioned, besides the book of Jonah, is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And you don't have to turn there right now if you don't want to. But in that one single verse, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah went to the king of Israel and said, expand the northern borders. That's all it says, that one verse. Expand the northern borders. Now we know historically at this time, for, for the decades leading up to that point, uh, Israel had been under the, the influence and the authority of, of other nations surrounding it, and especially under the influence of a, a big kingdom called Assyria. Assyria had been influencing, and they'd come into that area, and they had made Israel subject to the Assyrians. That means Israel had become a vassal state of Assyria, and they had to pay tribute to the Assyrians. But within the last decade, Assyria was having a lot of its own problems. They were being attacked from enemies uh, actually to the north of them. And so they're dealing with a lot of their own issues, and they don't have time to worry about Israel and about these other little countries down to the south. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and Jonah goes to the king and basically says, King, don't worry about Assyria anymore. I want you to go, and you need to expand the borders. It's time for us to become, uh, not to be weak, but to really kind of flex our muscles to become uh, a strong country. And we know historically at this time that Israel did become a fairly prosperous country. And so we don't know for sure. We can speculate a little bit that maybe Jonah became a bit of a national hero. 
Jonah had gone to the king. He had gave, gave the king courage and confidence to stand up to Assyria and say, hey, we won't pay you tribute. You know, we're going to expand our borders. And, and probably people were really proud of him. People come by, give him a pat on the back. Good work, Jonah. That's the kind of prophet I like to see, you know. And probably Jonah's feeling pretty, pretty proud. He's, he's got a lot of national pride. I'm an Israelite. You know, we, we stand up to the Assyrians. But then the word of the Lord comes to him again. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And where was Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them that I'm getting ready to judge them, and so they need to repent. And the idea there is that they need to repent so that God will forgive them, so that God will have mercy and bless them. And Jonah says, heck no, I'm not doing that. No way am I going to go and tell the Assyrian capital, the Ninevites, that God needs them to rep- wants them to repent. He says, I want them to be judged. I want God to judge them. I want God to hurt them. And so he says, I'm not going there. For two reasons. One, the Assyrians have done a lot of evil in the past. They were a very evil, wicked nation. Uh, when they would attack people, they would, do, they would commit a lot of atrocities, what we would consider terrorist acts, war crimes against people. We're going to bring a little quote up here on the board that uh, an Assyrian king said. We have this preserved in history. He said, Many of the captives I burned in the fire, many I took alive. From some I cut out their hands to the wrists. From others I've cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many soldiers. I burned their young men and women to death. So this is a nation of terrorists, a nation of Boston bombers, a nation of people who take pleasure, take delight in hurting other people. And so Jonah says, they deserve to be judged for what they've done. But Jonah's not just worried about the past, he's also thinking about the future. And he thinks, man, what would Assyria do if they got healthy again? What would happen if if they repent and God doesn't judge them and he blesses them and then they turn and they become evil? What's going to happen? They're going to come back and they're going to attack Israel. Right Right now they can't pay attention to Israel, but if they become healthy and powerful, they may come back, they may invade Israel, they may wipe us out. I don't want that. He says, I want God to just let them collapse. I want God to wipe them out forever so there's no potential for future aggression from the Assyrians. But the problem is, Jonah knows that God is compassionate. He knows that if he preaches and they repent, God will relent and he will even bless them. But Jonah is, as many of you are, he is a cynical person. And so he thinks that, yeah, they may repent, but it'll be temporary. It won't last. Maybe a year, maybe 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. But eventually they're going to revert back to their evil ways. But they'll be blessed. They'll be prosperous. And when they revert, now they're going to come down. They're going to attack Israel. And so Jonah says, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be a part of saving the country that could eventually destroy my own country. And so he tries to escape. You know the story. He tries to get to Tarshish, gets swallowed by a big old fish. Doesn't work. You know, he gets spit up on the land. And so Jonah realizes, I have no choice here. i got to go. So he goes. He preaches to the Ninevites. And they believe him. They believe him. Now, there's probably a number of reasons for this. Some people think that Jonah like, got burned with ash, acid in the fish's belly, and he's kind of funky looking, and that's why they believe. I don't know. I think that's really speculation. But one thing we know for sure is that the Assyrians were already under judgment. They were already under judgment. As I said before, they're being attacked by these other nations, and so their borders are shrinking. 
They're feeling pressure from these other countries. And in the ancient world, when that happened, you would assume that something's wrong in the, in the spiritual realm. You'd assume that either your gods are really ticked off at you or some other gods are ticked off at you that you don't know about. And so you'd be trying to find out, who, who did we offend? Who, which god did we, did we offend? How do we get right? How do we make things right? And so in that context, Jonah comes and he says, hey, Yahweh's really ticked off at you. He's going to judge you in three days. And they're like, okay, we believe you. What do we do? And in this culture, if you knew that a god was angry at you, you would try to appease that god. You would try to do something to make the god happy. Sacrifice or an act of devotion of some kind. And so they're probably saying, Jonah, what do we do? And and I doubt that Jonah was very forthcoming with them. Uh, I, I doubt that he wanted them to get right with God. But there would have been other Israelites they could have talked to. There would have been Israelite slaves, Israelite merchants. And so they're probably going around to these Israelites saying, what does your god want from us? What does he want us to do to appease him? And the message from the Old Testament would have been very simple. God requires repentance and righteousness. You need to repent. Turn away from your evil, wicked ways. Turn away from those evil sins that you're doing and live in righteousness. Live in right relationship to God. Live, do those things which please God, which are right. And so the Assyrians believe. They accept this. They turn to God, and God spares them. And historically, we actually see some evidence of this. At this period in time, the moral conditions of Nineveh really do seem to improve for the better. Seems like the Ninevites really did get right with God. But Jonah is ticked, and he is cynical. He is really angry. He's thinking, man, these guys have done so much evil in the past, and they're going to do so much more evil in the future, but because they have this one little moment of repentance, God is going to let them off the hook. And he is ticked off at this. He says, man, God, this just makes you look weak. It makes you look like you can be manipulated. People are doing all this evil, and then you, and then you say, I'm going to judge you. And they say, oh, God, I'm sorry. And you say, okay, you're, you're fine. Oh, it makes you look like a weak God. In Jonah's mind, people can't just indulge in sin and then, and then repent and escape judgment. They deserve judgment. If you set off a bomb that that mutilates and kills people, then you deserve to be destroyed by God and sent to hell without opportunity for mercy and repentance. That's what Jonah's thinking. And so Jonah is scandalized by this. And he says, God, if this is the way that you are going to run the universe, I don't want any part of it. Okay, I'm out, man. I don't want to serve you. I want to die. Just kill me. If this is how you're going to do things, I don't get you, God. I thought you were a God of, of, of judgment, of righteousness and judgment, but... You're going to be this way? You're a pushover. I don't want to serve you. Kill me. And God says, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry over how I run the universe? And the implication is, no, he doesn't. We're going to see in verse 5 why that is. But I think this is important for us because I think some of you can probably identify with Jonah. You think, man, how, how come God is such a pushover sometimes? We're going to see why God spares them. Beginning in verse 5. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. 
He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? So Jonah goes out. It's probably during this three-day period. He's waiting to see if God is going to judge. And, and it's a hot climate. Uh, Nineveh is located in northern Iraq, and this is probably during the dry season, so it's very, very hot. Uh, and he, he tries to build this little lean-to, probably, to give him some shelter, but it's not working. He's, he's still really, really hot. And in verse 6, it says that the Lord God provided a vine or a plant for Jonah. Now, that phrase, the Lord God, is important because the Lord is the word Yahweh. It's God's covenant name, the name that represents God's relationship to Israel, to his people. He chose them. He planted them. He loves them. He's intimate with them. But the word God there, it's the word Elohim. And it represents God's universal name, that he is, he is the creator of the world, that he is sovereign over the whole world, that he plants and uproots nations as he will, and that he cares about the world. And so this covenant, universal God sends a plant to Jonah. And it's a big help. Jonah is really happy with this plant. But then God sends a worm, and the worm chews the plant, and then he sends a scorching east wind. And we know that in this area, temperatures can easily get over 120 degrees and so Jonah probably does feel like dying. Then in verse 9, God asks Jonah why he's angry. And the Hebrew word for anger there, it's not just your typical anger. It's the anger of pity. When something bad happens to something that you love, you feel, you feel angry because you pity that thing. If something, someone hurt your children, you would be angry because you care so much about them. And so God is saying, Jonah, why are you so angry the anger of pity, the anger of compassion over this plant. See, Jonah isn't just angry he's because it's hot. He's not just angry because his shade is gone. He's angry because he genuinely cared about this plant, for whatever reason. This guy's lonely, I guess. You know, no, no, no woman for him, you know, just sitting alone in the desert, and it's hot, and, and, and there's nothing to look at, and, and suddenly this green, beautiful plant springs up, and it gives him some shade, and he gets attached to it. Oh, I like this plant. And then the plant died, and he gets ticked off. And so I grew up thinking that the moral of the story was don't be selfish and don't love plants more than people, maybe. <laughs> or as I got older, I, I, I deepened that a little bit, and I thought, okay, don't love God's blessings more than people. That was my, kind of my application. And I think that's true. I, I think that's appropriate. That's a good application. But I think that there's something a little bit deeper here going on. I think that this plant is a metaphor. I think God is trying to show us in verses 10 and 11 how he, how God feels about Nineveh. And this is really important because this is going to show us God's heart for big cities. Cities full of people. Cities like our city. And the first thing we see, the first point we see here is that God planted Nineveh. God planted Nineveh. Verse 10 says, God says to Jonah, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. The contrast here is that Jonah, he didn't plant the vine, he didn't make it grow, but God planted Nineveh. 
and God made Nineveh grow. God is saying, Jonah, you love this thing which you didn't create. How much more do you think I love a city that I planted, filled with people that I created? A city that I made grow. See, in the ancient world, people thought that local gods planted each city. So each city was planted by its own little god. And so God, I don't know, God whatever plants this city, and this other god plants this city. And in this passage, God's saying that's bogus. I'm the one who plants. I'm the one who plants cities. I'm the one who sovereignly ordains that cities will, will come into existence and they will grow. I'm the one who planted this city. And though Nineveh, though this city is badly marred by sin, it still reflects my image and it still bears the marks of my work here. So the first point is that God planted Nineveh. The second point, God pitied Nineveh. God pitied Nineveh. It, the plant, sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The contrast here is that this plant, it's young and it's insignificant. It has no mental or moral awareness. But God has been working in Nineveh for a long time. And it's filled with people who have eternal significance. And God is not in a hurry to destroy his work. He's not in a hurry to destroy those people. He may have to, but he's not in a hurry to do so. But there is something that is destroying God's work. There is something that is trying to destroy those people. It's the worm of evil, the kingdom of Satan. And just as a worm destroyed that plant, so also evil is destroying this city which God planted. The phrase, knowing your right hand from your left, was an idiom in the ancient world for, for moral knowledge. It meant to know the difference between right and wrong. And so many people have interpreted this verse as referring to children. Uh, but I, the word here, the word here for people, in the Hebrew, it's just the generic word for, for humanity or for mankind. It's just Adam. And so what I think the point here is, is that because of Nineveh's age and because of God's work in the city, it has grown into a huge city, 120,000 people. It was one of the biggest cities in the ancient world at this time, probably in the top five. It was prosperous. It had many, many cattle. But because of the work of evil, the worm of Satan in this city, these people had become morally confused. They didn't know the difference between right and wrong. It doesn't mean that they're innocent. Jonah's clear that if they don't repent, God's going to judge them. They are guilty of sin. They have willingly engaged in sinful behaviors that have led them into greater and greater darkness. It's like in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul talks about this moral slide that humanity is on. You, you go from, you, first you reject God, then that leads into idolatry, then that leads into other sins, and other sins, and other sins. And at the very bottom, it gets to the point where, where Paul says that people began to say that good was evil, and evil was good. If you reject the knowledge of God, you are on a path toward getting to that point where you say, hey, this, this, this thing which people say is good, it's actually evil. This thing over here which people say is evil, that's actually good. That's what had happened to the Ninevites. They got to the point where they were affirming that evil is good and good is evil, and they're confused and their hearts are hard. And yet, despite that, God pities them. He has compassion on them. 
He wants them to repent and to receive his mercy. And so God is saying, Jonah, you pity this young plant which has no mental or moral awareness, but you have no pity for a city that I planted. And I've been working here for many years. And now it's being destroyed by evil. You think I should be more concerned about this plant than 120,000 people who are headed for destruction. I think it's easy to stand back and kind of judge Jonah and be like, man, that Jonah, what a loser. But the reality is I'm more similar to Jonah than I care to admit. About a week ago, a little over a week, I heard about you know, the Boston bombings, and then I heard about the two guys, the two suspects in the bombings. And my first reaction was to think, you know what? I hope somebody really hurts those guys. Man, I, maybe the police shouldn't get them. Maybe the mafia should get a hold of those guys and really just put the screws to them, you know. Or, or maybe if the police get them, they'll, I hope they put them in a prison cell with some really bad dudes that really hurt those guys. That's, honestly, that's what I thought. Then I heard that the first brother had been killed, and my, my honest thought was, all right, he's in hell. And I don't say that out of pride. I say that out of shame. My heart was for divine, not for human uh, justice, it was for human vengeance. And it wasn't for divine mercy, it was for divine judgment. And when we begin to feel that way and think that way, it's a sign that something is not right in us. And at about the same time of, uh, that that happened, my, my van had a very minor issue, very minor. Some, the, the, this one light blinked and, and told me I needed to go to mechanic, and I got upset about it. I thought, man... How inconvenient. i got to go to a mechanic. That's like half a mile away. Oh, God, why do you allow bad things to happen to me, you know? And, oh, what if I have to pay, like, a little money to fix the van? And then I, I stopped and thought, you know what? I'm more worried about the van. I'm just like Jonah. I'm more worried about my van than I am about two eternal souls. Crazy. We need to recognize that we have a natural tendency to be like Jonah. It's human nature. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do I have God's heart for my city? Do I have God's heart for my city? Do I recognize, do I realize that God planted my city, that it is not an accident? You see, ancient people thought that little gods planted their cities, but modern people, we don't think that God has anything to do with it. We think of cities as purely human things. People are drawn to an area because there's good resources, and then more people are drawn, and there's a village, and then there's a town, and then there's a city, and it's just a human construct. It's just a human phenomenon. And that is true on a small level. That is what happens. But on a big level, God is the one who's planting. God is the one who has sovereignly said, this city will happen at this time in history, and I will raise it up, and it will grow to this, this number of people. God is the one who ordains cities and causes them to grow. And God is the one who has planted and ordained the existence of Los Angeles, the existence of Torrance. And he's involved in its functions. He's, he's the one who is upholding it and working in our city for justice and righteousness and mercy and trying to hold back the flood of evil. That is what God is doing among our, within our cities. And though our city, though our greater Los Angeles area is badly corrupted by sin, it still reflects God's image and it bears the marks of God's work. Do I pity my city? Do I grieve over Satan's efforts to harm it? Do I grieve over the moral and the spiritual blindness of people around me? People who are headed for judgment. Does that break my heart? Do I tear up thinking about the eternal destination of co-workers 
and neighbors and friends? Am I desperate for those people to repent and to receive God's mercy? Or do I get satisfaction thinking about their judgment? God forbid. In Jeremiah 29.7, God sends a message through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. The Jews had been exiled by the Babylonians. The Babylonians had come, taken them out of their land, put them in the land of Babylon, and planted them in these other, these pagan cities where people were idolaters. And so the Jews are huddled up in their little holy huddles, and they're saying, oh God, this is terrible. Everybody's so evil. God, take us back to our promised land. Take us back to Jerusalem, please. So God sends a message through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, don't worry about going back. That's not going to happen for a long time. Right now, I want you to pray for the peace and the prosperity of your city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That must have been a shock to them to a Jewish person who worships God, that he is supposed to pray for a pagan city. And I think in some ways, we do the same thing. You know, we look around at our our city, our nation, and we say, oh, you know, just going to hell in a handbasket. So we get in our little holy huddle, and we're, we're watching Fox News, and we're like, oh, Obama's destroying our country. Oh, Jesus, come back, quick. Of course, I want Jesus to come back. I look forward to that. But until that day comes, God calls us to love and to pity our city. His command to us is the same as it was to Jonah. He told Jonah, go and preach. He tells us, go and make disciples. And so we can turn the other way. We can isolate ourselves waiting for God to come and to rescue us and to judge everyone else. Or we can obey and we can reach out. So the first question is, do I have God's heart for my city? The second question is, do I have God's heart for the world? In some ways, that's harder, I think. Most of us love our nation. We love our city. We're proud to be Americans. We're proud to live in the South Bay. Uh, You know, we, we pray for our nation, for our city. We want to be a light at our jobs and in our community. But sometimes we just don't feel all that concerned about the rest of the world. We say the right things. Oh, yes, I want the whole world to believe. But there are just certain places and certain people groups that are hard to love. When it comes to people in the world that we view as our enemies... People like Muslims living in the Middle East or in North Africa, it's easy to just dismiss them and to condemn them and to say, man, they're crazy. It's just a bunch of terrorists. We should just just nuke them. It would save us a lot of trouble. You may have never said that, but I'm sure some of you have thought that. I have. Just being honest. Sadly, our attitude as Christians can become very ethnocentric. We can think things like, boy, I sure enjoy living in the greatest nation on earth with all the blessings of God and a church practically on every corner. And I'm not worried about those people in other countries headed for hell. I mean, they deserve it. They they try to bomb us sometimes. And so it'd be better if God just wiped them out. The sooner the better. Sounds a lot like Jonah, but not much like Jesus, who left the comforts of heaven to seek and save hardened and lost sinners. And so I think God would say to us, you know what, I planted those communities too. And I made them grow. And historically, I've been working in those communities a lot longer than I've been working in Los Angeles. And Satan has tried to corrupt my work there. And he has led those people into moral and spiritual blindness. Where they can't tell their left, right hand from their left. I can't tell my left hand from my right. But God would say, I still love them. And I still desire for them to repent so that I can have mercy on them. Who will go? Who will go to them? And tell them that, yes, there's judgment, but I desire to have mercy. 
See, I think the point of this whole passage, if you want to boil it down to one point, is that God loves people. God cares about people. I think sometimes as conservative Christians, we rightly react against this kind of liberal view that God loves everybody, so he would never judge anybody. We react against that, and so we say, you know, God would judge, but we almost go too far. And we almost act like God wants to judge, like he's just, you know, barely holding back his rage, like, oh, I just want to judge him, but oh, I shouldn't judge him, but I want to. God does judge people in cities, and we actually see that in Nineveh. 150 years after Jonah is written, Nineveh is powerful, God has blessed them, and they become very evil again, very evil. And they come down and they completely wipe out Israel, completely destroy Israel. They do terrible things to many people. And so 50 years after that, God judges Nineveh. He brings a whole bunch of armies, and those armies wipe out Nineveh, wipe it out so completely that it's never been resettled. You can go there and see the ruins, there's nobody there. God does judge, but that is not his heart. That is not what he wants. He wants to save. He wants to have mercy. He wants people to repent. And so the question we have to ask is, do I have God's heart for my city, for my world? As Martin and the worship team come up, they're going to lead us in a closing song. What I want you to do is not necessarily to sing. You can sing if you want to. But what I want you to do is to pray and ask God, God, give me your heart for my city. Give me your heart for the world. Because it has to be supernatural. You know, we're, we're tiny, finite, sinful little humans who are focused on our own lives and we have our own issues and it's hard to have God's heart for our city, for the world. We need his supernatural grace to give it to us. So just spend some time saying, God, I want to I wanna have your heart for my city. I want to, to, to love people here and to see the city the way you see it, that you planted the city, that you do not desire to bring judgment on it just because of all the evil that, that's been coming out of Hollywood and all this other stuff. You desire to have mercy for people to repent. Do I have God's heart? Do I pity my city? Ask God, God, give me a heart for people in my city. And give me a heart for people in the world. And Lord, give me some practical steps, practical ways to reach out. Not just, okay, I want to love people, then that's it. But God, how can I get involved in my community? How are you calling me to love and to reach out within my community to spread the news that there's a God who loves people and who desires to have mercy? Just pray and think about that during this song.